0: Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to the Just King Things Question Sewer for our second annual, I guess it's annual now, sewer special. Hey, <laughs> I'm a little guy. I'm in the sewer. <laughs> I like
1: to answer the questions, and I also unclog the pipes. <laughs> Have you ever had any questions, Georgie? <laughs> You got any questions? <laughs> I gotta, hold on. I got to unclog this pipe with my tongue. Blah, blah. <laughs> okay, I'm good.
0: Uh, I got questions now. Uh, Yep, this is hey. another episode where we uh, uh, hang out in the sewer and answer some questions that people threw down here. I will say, speaking of what you just did, I do catch myself doing
1: the Tim Curry, Pennywise, Georgie voice. <laughs> just like around the house. Yeah. <laughs> That if 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 uh, if, uh, if there's a long lasting impact of the show, it's that I never would have done that before, <laughs> but I'll be like watering plants and be like Georgie,
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> hey Georgie, got to water the plants. <laughs> <laughs> it's like very close to the
0: pigeons from uh, Animaniacs. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, oh god, what did they call them? I think they were the stool pigeons, right? Uh, uh but it was um cause it was a Goodfellas parody.
1: Yeah, well, okay, so hold on. Let's see. There's uh Pinky in the Brain. Mm hmm. There's yeah, you're not a man, you're a chicken boo. Uh huh. And then there's a uh, good idea, bad idea. Mm-hmm. And then there's Animaniacs, pigeons, I'm Googling them.
0: Uh uh Good Feathers. Rita and Rod good, good feathers, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So they're good. They're yeah, funny. Yeah. They're funny little guys. Awesome. Well, this uh, takes care of the, you know, first part of the question sewer where we think about the Animaniacs. I didn't know that. Okay, according to this is
1: Wikipedia or I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. This is Animaniacs.fandom.com slash wiki slash good feathers. The main stars lived atop a park statue of Martin Scorsese in New York City and spoke with distinct New York accents. Their rival gang is made up of sparrows. They moved to Burbank, California in the season four segment Boyd's in the Hood. (laughs) Boyd's in the Hood.
0: (laughs) Okay. Oh, my God. The Martin Scorsese uh, statue is such a perfect example of like weird stuff that was in that show that no child watching it was going to get.
1: Oh, no, I could recognize Marty on site by the age of four. Oh, okay.
0: Well, uh, yeah, you were yeah.
1: raised better. Uh, I had culture. <laughs> um, I was enculturated into the art. A fine, fine recognition of the finest uh, directors, of course, uh, Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Bogdanovich, and the like, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, uh, but, but, uh, that's, that's good. That's good stuff. hmm Yeah, remember, have I, have, uh, this is me just, uh, avoiding doing the thing we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, have I talked about Italian-American? What? Like oh, the podcast, oh, oh, Scorsese's thing. Okay. Like, it's one word. Yeah, it's one word. Italian-American.
0: Uh, I don't know if you've talked about it on the show, but I know you and I have talked about it. okay. Well, it's great. People should yeah. watch it. I think about it
1: all the time. A Martin Scorsese documentary made about his parents. And uh, it's excellent. It's truly excellent. I think it's on the uh, it's on a, a disc. If, you, if you're a physical media person, I think it's called like Martin Scorsese Short Works or something. It's a Criterion disc. Hmm.
0: Anyway, check it out. Italian American. It's good.
1: Yeah. It's got it's got Marty's Marty's mother. And she's she's from New York.
0: I have seen the clip clip of him on. Um, I think it's maybe the Late Show or the Tonight Show where he like brings on his mother and she like makes yeah. manicotti or something.
1: She makes meatballs, Yes, I <laughs> Yeah. It's great. Yeah.
0: yeah. All right. We're uh question sewer. We just answer questions, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we sent a bunch in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just to say it at the top, we'll say it again at the end. If you ever want uh, to ask us a question, uh, you know, I, we will maybe cover it on a future currently, question Currently, we save them up. Yeah.
1: Currently, we save them all up and answer <laughs> them at one time. But we might not do that in the future.
0: Yeah. We might at some point have... <clears throat> We might at some point have uh, an actual, like, episode that doesn't run us into two or two and a half hours. And we can, I don't know, take some questions at the end of a bonus. Uh, but for now, they just happen on the special. Um, so if you want to ask us a question, you can send it to our special email address, thequestionsewer at gmail.com.
1: Let's do it. All right. Question number one. You So you do, I, I'm going to, behind the curtain a little bit here, right? Michael goes through all the questions. Mm-hmm. And then uh, make some selections. Some are just doubled up, you know. Sometimes we get multiple questions, so not every question that everyone asks obviously is on our sheet of paper here. Mm-hmm. But uh, also, it's not a sheet of paper. <laughs> uh, but uh, but Michael does that, and then he, then he categorizes them. And I go through, and then I blow all that mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. So I've blown that up by the last question that's on the sheet or <laughs> on the on the document.
0: I've said, Michael, let's start there. Okay. <clears throat> Um, hey, guys, love the show, but don't understand the Dylan hate. What did he ever do to you? And what would you need to uh, get on Patreon to start a listening to Bob Dylan catalog in chronological order with an open mind podcast? Cheers, Jake. Homestuck, Jake. Wow.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Jake
0: English here uh, asking us about our our Bob Dylan takes. The I got to say this, just to be honest with you. Uh
1: I've said many times, I'll do anything for money. Right? I'll listen to anything mm-hmm. for money. It would take a lot of money to get me to listen to Bob Dylan with an open mind. It's my favorite my
2: song.
1: <laughs> and then he goes, electric, not on my watch. <laughs> so uh I, I don't like Bob Dylan because he's not good. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> in the same way that i don't like i don't know
0: eating dirt it's not good uh i just have a bias against all nobel prize winners that you know what i actually thought
1: i was thinking about my answer to this question you know because i do i read this document when you prepared it and i thought hey, it might be i'm just biased you know faulkner Mm-hmm. uh Bob Dylan, no thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Other winners, no way. You know what? Here's the thing. Nobel Prize doesn't have an award for cinema. That is how interesting. Serious, how serious can I take it?
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Seems like the guy who invented dynamite uh, didn't really broaden his cultural horizons.
1: No, it's just some... Cla- yeah, that's, that's right. You're taking the dynamite man's award if you get the Nobel Prize. This is why Sartre <laughs>
0: wouldn't take it. <laughs> Okay. Well, I'm glad we got that one out of the way.
1: Yeah. Well, I wanted yeah. to, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where do you want me to go next? Since you've uh, you, you can do you can do whatever word. you
1: want. I'm gonna I'm gonna go here. I go. Boop boop. And I'm gonna cro- I'm gonna put red marks. Boom. Red. We've done that one already.
0: Okay. Okay. Good to go. Like we mentioned on the drawing of the three episode that uh, there were some like obscure audiobook recordings that we were looking for. We had multiple people uh, reach out to us with tips about that. Um, Thank you so much. Just, you know, acknowledging that that uh, uh, we got those messages uh, and we are well and fully satisfied.
1: Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, I had a few people DM me too. Mm-hmm. um i think i
1: responded to all those and if i didn't i apologize uh mm-hmm. i get a lot of dms uh but yeah people definitely let us know uh you know that it happens we are i do like this we are at the level of listenership uh you know like scale mm-hmm. where if you make a request people will actually do it <laughs>
0: which is pretty cool so shout out to all y'all for doing that thank you mm-hmm. uh Next question, uh, Dan writes in asks on the show. You talk a lot about the untouchable status King has a, had as an author in the '80s, uh, uneditable, I believe, was the term. However, I'm wondering if you can recall how that played into his wider cultural impact. As a young'un, I grew up well past the point when Stephen King had been absorbed into the American cultural mainstream. I first read It and The Dark Tower out of my high school library. But given that, broadly, these were the same years as the Satanic Panic, and as, the time of, uh, and as of the time of writing, Just King Things is slowly approaching the era of video game violence outrage, my question is if the works of Stephen King were ever subject to the same moral scrutiny as some of the uh, contemporary moral outrages.
1: Mmm, you know that's a great question, I think. Mhm. Uh the answer is kind of yes, uh but also uh he made too much money. Mhm. Like truly. I I think that that that's part of the thing. So, for example, 86 is when he's on the cover of Time, uh um, mm-hmm. you know, the the itch uh, coinciding with the release of It. Uh, and in that, I actually read that issue for that episode, and there's not a lot in there that's not in other places. So I don't think it came up very often or very much in there. Although I do think I have, um, uh, I've shared some images of like the interviewee parts of that. I think with you and maybe in the Discord too. But so so yes, right? But like the Satanic Panic is not all in the in kind of moral majority um, politics that are happening in the mid '80s. Uh, much like any kind of, of um, I would say, conservatively oriented cultural politics now, mm-hmm. like in the current era that we're living in, they uh, they only pick enemies that they can defeat very easily. I mean, just mm-hmm. to be honest, right? I mean, it, it's, right. It's, it's a political program that no matter where you land on it, I think you have to to recognize that it operates by way of uh, sub, sublimating and dominating. Um, and so Stephen King was undominateable, you know, in a, in a general sense, he made too much money. Um, mm-hmm. TSR and D&D and the nerds that played that or, um, you know, heavy metal album covers or any of that kind of stuff. Those are like m- super small groups of people in terms of the population of the United States. Right. Like overwhelmingly <laughs> small with no political power and no allies in political power. Stephen King had the weight of you know essentially. I mean, it was the big five at the time. I think still, or, or not. I mean, not still, but I don't think it was bigger than that. I think still, it's the big five mm-hmm. publishers, right? He had Viking behind him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? Like like that. That's that is a, a publishing apparatus that's just huge and massive and makes so much money. Right. Um, and well, so like Stephen one percent of yeah. all
0: all hardback fiction or whatever being sold is under his name,
1: right. Um, and so, you know, it's this kind of like double whammy of Stephen comes up during the horror boom, like the post exorcist horror boom. That's where he solidifies himself as a name. And by the time that that kind of, um, early eighties Reaganism, whatever, uh, by the time that that supercharges into a big political force, he's just too big. Right. So Mm -hmm. it's just as much, I wouldn't say it's like, Oh, Stephen King, uh, somehow outmaneuvered them or anything like that. He just dodged. You know, he was he he was too powerful at the right time to be impacted by that in a way that I imagine that some horror writers were not. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the horror paperback revolution. I, you know, I don't. This is just like off the dome, Michael. You tell me if you think this is right. But it actually it uh recedes at the moment of Pat Robertsonification, right? Um. Mm-hmm. You know, the those actually the satanic panic stuff is coming into its own as the horror
0: market is tanking um, mm-hmm. in like the paperback horror market. Um, yeah, that that would be my mm-hmm. sense of it as well. Um, that uh, uh, there's like an exceptionality to King as a cultural figure. Uh, that means that he's just he's not in these crosshairs. Right. The the way that the the little like, I don't know, truism or whatever, that's always in my head in moments like this that I borrow from. uh the Politics and Poetics of Transgression by Stalley Brass and White is the phrase uh, the socially peripheral is often symbolically central. So, in, and they're speaking kind of about these sort of moral panics. Uh, precisely in this uh, mode that you were describing Cameron where uh, this structure of feeling like picks things that it can beat right the sort of most uh, peripheral or marginalized or disempowered kind of example uh, is going to be elevated to a, si- uh, a central symbolically important position uh, because that's the, the battle that's being fought here right is about trying to uh, gin up anger about a thing that is in fact extremely minor and inconsequential that not a lot of people are being exposed too right
1: and you know the the that's within a context in which um you know post 1970s racial politics are continuing right and all that's Mm going to continue up through the 1990s uh the the i think we often like not on purpose i think this is just they're kind of treated as separate things but they're not uh you know culturally they're not the uh the The maneuver that happens with like in the 1980s, there's a satanic panic. and We have kind of a narrative like that it just ended. Right. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, for example, where I was growing up, when I was playing D&D in the early 2000s, satanic panic was still a thing. I still uh-huh. would hear people regularly talking about metal music or um or dnd those two things in particular as being satanic it was the same rhetoric of as what we think about as the 1980s but to be honest with you also the other thing that's kind of missing from the cultural narrative there's rap uh Mm -hmm. rap by the certainly by the late 90s um early 2000s when i was starting to you know kind of really uh expand my musical horizons right rap was treated as exactly the same as all that other stuff um for all those uh, conservatives that that I was around growing up um, and that's also what's happening in the in the um, 80s and 90s right like what happens is that the satanic panic uh, evangelism kind of gets sublimated into that narrative and then it turns into the other narrative you're talking about right the the question of video game violence because the contemporary question for video game violence was, the MPAA rulings, or not rulings, mm. but decisions that were made around creating the, or not MPAA, uh,
0: what, what's the music one? Um, oh, the RAAA? Uh,
1: uh, is that it?
0: Recording Industry Artists of America?
1: Yeah, the RIA? Yeah. I don't know. Wait, wait, wait. The Parental
0: Advisory Warning.
1: Oh, did oh, that? oh,
0: that thing. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, uh, the I just don't have the name, the, the mm-hmm. title. Uh, Tipper Gore. Yeah, so Chipper, yes, Chipper core. <laughs> but, right, so, like, think about this. So, looking at the parental advisory label, so those, uh, that eventually happens in 1996, uh, you know, and becomes, like, widely done. But it begins, the arguments about them and the idea of self-regulation within the industry around content, that's 85 Wow. Right. So like it's like all these are a part of one another. So that's not to draw like I'm not exploding this question to avoid answering it. But the reason the the, the thing I'm trying to point out is that there is a uh, large set of uh, cultural fighting. Right. Uh, you know, things that are being thought about culturally uh, that are about. I mean, fundamentally about hegemonic power. Right. Right. About. Uh, dominating about the the majority or a a majority who thinks it deserves to rule, a majority dominating a minority in every kind of small thing. And I don't mean, you know, um, representational minority. I don't mean of identity necessarily, although I think with rap music, obviously that's the case. Um, But anything that does not fit into the cultural majority's narrative, just being attacked aggressively. I mean, that was the maneuver of Reaganism. That is the movement of evangelism in the 1980s that's what gave it power um Mm -hmm. and that's what still i mean we have we are living in those movements still today they are national politics again we are living after the moment of supreme court decisions that are um if not directly aligned with them then certainly in conversation with them um from the 70s Mm -hmm. and 80s so um that's a weirdly heavy answer to that question. But I think it was Stephen King got rich enough early enough that he did not have to fight with it. And look, Steve was on the right side of a lot of this stuff, too, in the sense of, yeah. um, you know, we, I th-
0: you know, we get, we like to give Steve. Shit We're going to get because- into some of this, I think, with the next couple questions, just so you know.
1: <laughs> right, right. Uh, so, yeah, maybe I'll just give like the little small thing, you know, like the, the stub, which is like Steve uh, gets a lot of things wrong. Mm-hmm. about, like, the world, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think you know, I think that's why. It's also 40 years ago, right? The, yeah. The Steve we've been talking about. People change. He's a, Stephen King is not a totality. Stephen King is a, a morphine object through time. Gets a lot of things wrong. Um, And I think if you read those interviews from the mid-'80s, uh, he uses a lot of language I don't think we would agree with today, you know, in a general mm-hmm. sense. I think many people wouldn't agree with it then. I think in ethic, right, Stephen King fundamentally believes... That uh, people who are uh, oppressed deserve freedom mm-hmm. and that people should be able to write and say whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'd lived through, I mean, God, the the dude had lived through the 1960s and 1970s. He saw what happened to people who were political dissidents.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then he chose to stake that debate and battle in um, like the, the most centrist form of liberalism you can.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, uh, because Stephen King, you know, notoriously hated the people to the left of him, or, or if not hated, thought they were ineffective and bad. Hmm. Um. He did not have a lot of patience for them, especially reading those college newsletters, yeah. um, or, or articles. Anyway, sorry, I'm ta- I've been talking about this for a long time, but I think the thing is that ultimately Stephen King was on the right end of this stuff, and he was a big defender, and he had enough money at this time to say that that the freedom of, art, of artistic expression is important. And everyone in publishing is invested in that because mm-hmm. that's in fact their whole deal.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this this has come up in the Castle Rock newsletters a couple times where he's like advocated against like library book bans and and uh, there was like some sort of maybe censor- censorship law that was going to get passed that he was in Maine, I think,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, that he was like putting money uh, on a campaign against or something to that uh, effect. So. Yeah, it did get passed.
1: Uh, I, I don't remember what I was just reading. Oh, it might have been the Banned Books Week talk that I've referenced mm-hmm. in the past couple episodes. Um, uh, but that talk, he I mean, he's there. He's in Virginia Beach for that. But mm-hmm. it, it, it's to give a talk about the book bandings that are happening in the 1980s. And, like, why would that be bad, right? I mean, he's out there mm-hmm. kind of throwing weight around. I think you've talked about, Michael, uh, uh, the when he was in North Carolina when the um, pornography laws were passed.
0: I don't remember this.
1: I think you did. I think you talked about it on an episode that, that when he was um, – uh, that there were, like, anti-obscenity laws passed, and so pornography was taken off the shelf. So, like, one day he goes to the grocery store, and it's there, and then the next day he comes in, and it's gone. And, like, he – somewhere – maybe I just read it in one of the newsletters, but – um, so, but yeah, so, I mean, that's, a, that was a lie, much like the time that we live in right now. It's kind of hard to understate that, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the exact political experience in the U S that we're having right now has happened before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same playbook and it's the same ideas, you know, I'm, and I'm not, um, trying to be on a pedestal or on a high horse here, but that, you know, it speaks to our contemporary moment in a very strong way. Um, And Stephen King was um, the most powerful writer in the United States. If not that, then right up there. And he very explicitly said, this is not okay. And I'm not going to support it. And I'm going to spend money trying to make it not happen. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm going to get out there and talk. Um, And, uh, you know, it's a thing that's worth thinking about. So he was just too rich and powerful. (laughs) That's the answer. (laughs) The short answer is. Stephen King, uh, dodges all that because he actually is a
0: locus of the other side in that moment. Yeah. The satanic panic, whatever. Yeah. And relatedly, the next question, uh, you've talked before about how King has disdain or even contempt for the more critically acclaimed literary scene. Given that he is a popular but critically dismissed writer, do you have any idea if he's actually accepted as a voice for the quote unquote common man, malevolent cars and TK abilities aside Brandon in Minneapolis?
1: I have no idea. So, I I mean, I don't know if I'm the the index for the common man either, right? I'm not polling like hundreds of people about what Stephen King they read,
0: but. Yeah, I mean, I would say like I'm not I am also not like an index for the common man. Um, But what I can say is that like common man in America is a very particularly loaded phrase. Right. Uh, right, right. And I don't think. um uh, Stephen, like the, the, it is also politically charged, right? I think maybe, you know, the historically these things drift, but I think from the 1980s onward at the very least, the idea of the common man is also implicitly conservative. Um, this is like, you know, a white like farmer standing in his fields looking up at the sunrise while Aaron Copeland music plays kind of stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so, uh, in that sense, right, I don't think Stephen King is a particularly good index of, like, common man stu- uh, uh, values in America or whatever. Uh, but that said, uh, I think he works, gesturing what you were talking about in the previous uh, answer, Cameron. Um, I have this, he, he is kind of a, a, like, common figure for a certain type of, uh, like, liberal, <laughs> right just to mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. be particularly frank about it like uh when i was hanging out uh on the king listservs when i was a kid and in the stephen king chat rooms uh these were people who were not too dissimilar from like my mom who's you know very much like a a like working class like republican voter but they were all like left of center and sort of and my mom's a big stephen king reader uh, as well so there is some sort of like you know if there's a, a cultural venn diagram there is some sort of overlap where people fall into kind of like a Stephen King bucket but I don't think it necessarily like translates into their politics or whatever um but there's a kind of like post 60s uh affability uh I think to to King uh for some people that does allow him to function as a kind of uh mm, face for I, There was a person, God bless her, uh, who dealt with me a lot when I was very young and uh, 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 a little jerk in in the chat room online. Uh, But her half joking sign off in the newsletters was always King for president. And it was really half joking, right? I always got the sense that she truly believed that if Stephen King were president, like things would get better.
1: (laughs) There's nothing I believe less than that (laughs) I feel so confident that that is not a thing
0: right and the thing that I want to underscore there right is uh sort of a bunch of gendered stuff right like I Hmm. think because Stephen King is a writer he's never going to be a good fit for like what Americans in the present moment think about the common man there's there's something there's something hostile to that in the American imaginary right being a writer is to a feat (sighs) yeah I think so too Mm mm-hmm
1: um yeah. I well I will say this. Uh occasionally it comes up, just in the world, that I've I have read like a quarter of Stephen King in publication order. And uh people go, Wow. And then they say they generally, overwhelmingly, say, I read blank 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 Stephen King book. And that doesn't happen for any other book I talk about. Yeah. I know people love for me to talk about Malazan Book of the Fallen on here. So when I say, uh, (laughs) you know, when I, the first book was it the Gates of the Moon or something. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, When I, you know, if you mention those, you mentioned the culture novels. If you say, uh, oh yeah, consider Flabus, they don't, they don't, (laughs) you know, Gardens of the Moon. Sorry. They don't perk up. They don't have anything to say. But the other Mm -hmm. day I was like talking to a repair man. The most common man of the common men. (laughs) <laughs> uh whatever that is right that's a loaded yeah deal. but whatever that means all right he's like a working class dude we were just chatting i mentioned stephen king and he told me about some stephen king stuff mm-hmm. uh, so in terms of like that i mean look in St- in the 1980s stephen king is saying hey here's the deal i write mcdonald's <laughs> yes you know what i mean and it, everyone's had mcdonald's or most people have had some mcdonald's in their life if you're an american it's probably statistically very rare if you've never had a McDonald's in your life and have some sort of feeling for it. Um, and I think that's probably the same with Stephen King. Mm-hmm. And if people haven't read the books, they've seen something more than likely. Mm-hmm. You know, like just because there's some, they know Pennywise or whatever. So um, I don't know. I don't think that's. I don't think I've ever. An- or you answer that question sufficiently, Michael. All right. I'm going to read the next one. You ready? Okay. All right, there's a big question, a medium question, and a small question. Um, This is from Laura. I'm going to ask the big question first. Actually, no. I'm going to answer the... I'm going to do it in reverse order. I'm going to do little, medium, big. How about that? Sure. Little question. Would you ever... This is from Laura. Would you ever consider doing a
0: bonus ode on the Carrie musical? Sure thing. I have acquired a, a recording of it, so we can do that. I think I want to see it live. I don't know. We'll have to wait for a revival. That's what I'm saying. I, like, you know, <laughs> Cameron. I mean? like, it was I, it was so notoriously bad
1: <laughs> that I feel like, like Grant's gonna. I think Grant. <laughs> I think the last time I said this, Grant corrected me. The last time this came up on an episode, and I said it did poorly. I think mm-hmm. Grant corrected me and said it did not do poorly. Uh it just didn't make the transition I think to Broadway proper it
0: did It was very
1: successful off Broadway. I believe that is what I've been told.
0: I might be making okay it up. well, we'll wait for an off Broadway revival then, okay, and if that doesn't you know, happen, I have you know something back in storage to help us out.
1: I don't know. I just think you know once you capture a live performance, I mean what is it?
0: No, I mean it's not a live performance anymore you no, it's something else mm-hmm. I don't think I can review something else. <laughs> medium question this is also from laura when i was first getting
1: to king as a young teen that's a, there's a cadence to that when i was wait hold on let me let me see when i was first getting into king no that doesn't work all right so when i was oh. first getting to king as a young teen i found that 15 percent of the pros would go over my head due to the copious amounts of american references to antiquated brand names actors politicians pop culture he would make which were all very confusing to a zillennial living in australia wow well, zillennial my question is, do you guys know of any published books or online resources that have compiled all these references and explain what they mean? Like the L Space website for Discworld? Or are people better off Googling whatever is confusing them and hope for the best? I do not know of an online resource for this.
0: I do not know either. I say Google it and hope for this or whatever. Yeah. Google it and hope for the best. Uh <laughs> these are things that may exist in in, I don't <laughs> right. know, a century uh cuz it's this type of stuff that academics produce with regard to like Victorian novelists, right, concordances of of mm-hmm. like uh material cultural references. Um but uh Stephen King comes uh well, he comes before the wave of fandom that would be doing this online like ahead of the fact. Right.
1: I I'm actually kind of shocked by even now how thin like the fandom, traditional fandom resources are online. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Well, I think, I think, uh, I think he really, he has kind of, we talked about this on, on the misery episode, right? He's sort of like bringing this structure of genre fandom into mainstream, uh, literary publishing. mm -hmm. And at the same time, I feel like so many of his readers are like, they're adults (laughs) who like people who have like jobs and families and aren't going to, uh, devote a lot of time to these kind of concordances. That's sort of my sense of it. I don't, you know, don't quote me on that, but that just seems to be kind of the the weird thing is that he sort of imports the genre structure, but without the the traditional reserve of like young uh, connected uh, people who are willing to do like big expansive fan projects.
1: I, I will say this, part of the the deal here is that this is something that Stephen King, I don't think I have really brought this up on the show, it's come up a lot in reading Stephen King in the 80s, him talking, that's the biggest criticism that people have of Steve in the 80s, is that he is an unserious writer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by that, I mean like literary critics. New York Times reviews will always bring this up, the LA Times reviews, that kind of thing. That he has too many brand names and too many cultural references. And so it means that his writing is ultimately disposable because those things won't have meaning for a very long time. Uh, right. Everyone is hitting with this. It's like the obligatory sentence that's in every single uh, Stephen
0: King review, mm-hmm. right? No, this so, old idea that uh, literature must aspire to be timeless.
1: Mm-hmm. And his his isn't. It's pop, you know, quite right. literally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so uh, it is interesting to have this question because it's something he was kind of tagged with. And what's fascinating is it doesn't really get in your way. It doesn't seem like. Uh, seems like it makes for some confusing stuff. You might not know if nozzle Law is real or not. You know, right? How would you know? <laughs> um, but uh, you know, you might not know about uh, uh, Doctor Doom in the future. <laughs> is Doctor Doom real? But uh, but it's a you know that that's a thing that was being talked about.
0: Anyway. <laughs> Doctor Doom was an American senator from Missouri. <laughs> um. <laughs> He uh, <laughs> just flies right over the Australians' heads.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Dr, Dr. Doom wore a, a mask made of wrought iron to hide his ter- terrible visage, which was, uh, <laughs> of course, produced by the, by the uh, senatorial battles of the campaign <laughs> season of 88 to 92. Um, big question. This is also from Laura. Big question. Uh, we have mentioned, or no, so you guys had mentioned that you started reading Stephen King at a young age. It has a little bit of uh, parenthetical here about The Stand I'm not going to read. This seems to be true for a lot of people, too. How, despite... Uh, wait. Despite the adult themes and graphic nature of King's work, a lot of people were reading these books while they were in their preteens and teens. Why do you think that is? Is it that kids like to look impressive reading 800-page tomes? I know I did. This is in Laura's <laughs> question. Is that a lot of King's stories? Is it that a lot of King's stories center on young protagonists? Are kids just inherently drawn to spooky stuff, much like current youngsters' fascination with internet creepypasta? Was it that the pre-Harry Potter, Animorphs, Hunger Games, yada, 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 YA boom that, wa- that we have today there wasn't a ton of literature in the 70s or 80s for young kids? I'd be interested to hear your theories. Mm-hmm. I don't appreciate Harry Potter, Animorphs, and Hunger Games all being sliced together by this zillennial. <laughs> How dare you suggest that these things happened at the same time? I'd read a hundred Animorphs before Harry Potter came out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you had Literally. already learned about the horrors of biopolitics from K.A. Applegate before. Yes, I had.
1: Yeah. I, yes, the, 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 I'd, I'd learned about the Andalite Chronicles and that, that evil guy who took over the Andalite body. I'd learned about the Hork-Bajir and their cool planet where they all lived in the jungles in the middle of it, in the crack that got near the core. That's some good ass science fiction, then, of course. But uh, I don't know. What what do you think? Why do you think kids? Really, this question is: Why do you think kids
0: read Stephen King? Uh, I guess I have kind of two answers here. Um, (laughs) One, one, cursed, anciently. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Based on like the poll that you did on Twitter about it, um was it that about it or was it like general Stephen King? Uh, regardless, I think it was about it. Uh, there does seem to be a strong contingent of people who kind of like aim for the big thick books as kind of a symbol mm-hmm. of like difficulty and adultness. And, you know, in a really fascinating way, way they like reproduce like the, the concerns and anxieties of it as a narrative, right? Uh, it as a, a story about like the transition from uh, like childhood to adulthood or into young adulthood. Uh, so there's something happening. happening. Happening there, right? I think Stephen King really does uh, come to occupy um, that kind of mediatory space uh, for a lot of uh, young readers because, on the one hand, he is so popularly known, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Like uh, as close as you can get to kind of like a cultural constant or universal for people of kind of the previous few generations. and he does represent, like, for a time, right, he was the face of the American publishing industry, like one percent of all all books moving in in the country, right, were under mm-hmm. his name. so uh, one to- percent sounds small, but it's huge. It is. Yes. And it's like considering millions, millions and millions and millions. Yes. Right. Well, it's like like one person being one percent of the publishing industry. Right. When every other percent is made up of multiple people is astonishing. Like hundreds or
1: thousands of people. Right? Yes. Like like it's it's wild. Like it's such a huge number. It's impossible to to think truly.
2: Mm hmm.
0: So he has a kind of centrality that I think lends itself really well to being becoming this kind of symbol of like, oh, I have I have become I, I'm growing up and I'm going to read a Stephen King book. I think there's some of that. Uh, it feeds into uh, my other answer, which is just like a fairly specific uh, answer from my own perspective. And this has to do with like, you know, uh, uh, the, the part of the question like, you know, current youngsters fashion fascination with Internet creepypasta. Um, uh, I think kids are always interested in creepy things. I know this because I was one of them. Uh, maybe it does like wax and wane generationally, but I think you're always going to have like a little subset of, of the young population who's into monsters and stuff, right? Like, uh, that's like, there are people who like those things who like these genres. Um, and I know for me specifically, uh, I started reading King because I had gotten tired of, uh like young adults or like child oriented horror like goosebumps or something which yeah. was fine um but like after a certain point didn't really have any stakes to it for me right i did kind of get to a point where i think i was older and starting to like think about stories or think about the world in ways that made me want a little bit more from uh like what the uh like what horror was as a genre and there was Stephen King, right? Like what was horror? It was Stephen King. And so I started reading Stephen King and you know, now I'm here.
1: Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. Basically the same deal for me when I was very young, you know, I remember reading uh, the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. I read those in like, I think the Hobbit I read in the third grade. um, And that was probably my entry into like real books. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, like, like books that had chapters, I guess. That, that's the earliest of that. You know, we've talked about in many other episodes like uh, Hatchet, you know, that like that was the stuff I was reading before I read The Hobbit. I read like, mm-hmm. Hatchet and I read the Boxcar Children and like the Hardy Boys, Ugh, the Hardy Boys. Pfft, <laughs> no, thanks. Um, But but I read The Hobbit and uh, I, I think Gollum hit me real hard and I was like, I want whatever this is. <laughs> like what is this and i think i'd read like bullfinch's mythology too i think i i had like a course where we had to read some like greek myths not a course mm-hmm. i uh, you know i was in like a little kid classroom when we read about hercules or something but i know i had a copy of that and so i read some of that stuff i read i remember at that time reading poe uh and like not getting it and like mm-hmm. actively being like why, why did I try to read this thing, and it didn't work? like <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean like this I had doesn't the same experience.
0: Out. I could read Poe's poetry, but I like the prose, I was like, "What the hell? yeah, I just don't think I could like figure it out and so
1: so I so but that reading the hobbit then then that like opened up a whole bunch of stuff to me, and so I read like all the goosebumps, uh scary stories to tell in the dark that was like in that time for me, this is like third, fourth, fifth grade um wayside school that's a big one i've talked about bruce coville before like every mm-hmm. bruce coville book i could get my hands on uh so like all those like small chapter books um and then like the lord of the rings in there too and the Drizzt Do'Urden novels i was reading a bunch of those when i was mm-hmm. like fourth fifth grade uh and so it was basically the same thing that you're talking about like i hit a point where oh in the chronicles of prudane that was another like big thing for me Uh, but then I hit this point of, in like the fifth grade where I was like these, I know what these stories all are, right? Like the goosebumps are the same. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think I actually blew through, I was just looking at some dates on the Animorphs and I think I must've finished Animorphs because Animorphs ended in May, 2001. And so I think I actually finished it Mm -hmm. and I was like, well, what do I read? Because that would eleven twelve right there somewhere, that would that would line up for me in terms of like what uh you know, when I started reading Stephen King. Mm-hmm. And so I think I did that. I think I like finished up the the, the books I like the chapter books I was reading essentially, and learning about biopolitics and whatnot and about mm-hmm. uh warfare and how never no one ever comes back from it. Mm-hmm. And uh truly and uh, and then I started reading Stephen King. So I, I'm sure there were like other things in the mix there, you know, in terms of like, oh, it's a big book and that kind of thing. But I don't remember that being like a predominant oriented reason. It was just like I was in a library that served 400 kids or something, you know, a very small number of children. And the number of like adult books in it or like books for people who were not in the third grade. Uh, was pretty small, and there was a massive shelf of Stephen King, and it had things like Cycle of the Werewolf on it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that like had illustrations in it, and were kind of similar to what I've been reading because I do remember Cycle of the Werewolf being an earlier book that I read. Um, so I think that, you know that I think that's part of the story. There is I just kind of ran out of other stuff to read. Yeah. Oh, what's that story by Avi? Do you remember that story about about the kid who uh, about the ghost who like dies in the uh, dumb waiter?
0: Oh, yeah. With, with um, the ice cream, you know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh, uh-huh, because it gets adapted into a scary story, or uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark episode.
1: Oh, really?
0: Yeah, yeah, there's an episode of oh, You I gotta of Are track you... that
1: down. Yeah. I, I never got to see I Are You Afraid of the Dark was scary as shit, dude. I think at some point I had to have talked to my mom and been like, I just, I, uh, uh, dear mother, I need a scarier book, please. And mm-hmm. I think she probably recommended Stephen King. Yeah. That has to be the connecting line. I know she was reading Stephen King a lot at the time. And so even if she didn't say it, you know, I learned it from you, mom. You know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's the story. So I don't know why, you know, I don't know why everyone does it. But of course, I think all of those things that, Laura, that you said in the thing, like a lot of books about kids, that's cool. You know, that much like the other chapter books I was talking about, those are stories about kids and teens. Mm-hmm. Um, sp- spooky stuff is cool. We were living in kind of a cool era of spooky stuff at the time. You know, yeah. we had uh Courage's cowardly dog. Mm-hmm. That was fun. We had all real monsters. Mm-hmm. You know, i I I was we uh, were lucky of the generation to have weird shit as part of our <laughs> like formative years, like truly weird shit. Yeah. Um yeah. And it's pre-YA boom, so like that's all you had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I will say, though, I guess like Harry Potter was coming. I think I was talking about this in the Homestuck episode, but Harry Potter was coming out. And I actually actively was like, I don't think this is very good. I'm going to continue reading Stephen King. And so I only got so far in Harry Potter and read all of Stephen
0: (laughs) King. So it's funny because I remember the things have changed so much. The other thing that this made me think of uh, in terms of like how the temperature of things uh, shifted uh, is that we were growing up in a point where like. The move to young or the move out of like kids literature or like young adult fiction into adult fiction might have seemed different or had kind of a different uh, uh, weight to it. Uh, Because I remember as Harry Potter got uh, started, there was this bizarre, massive push to normalize adults reading young adult fiction. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's right? still going on.
0: Yeah, yeah, that yeah no, start. and that, like we live in the the consequence of that today. But like, that's when it starts with Harry Potter. Um,
1: but no, that was this time. There, there. I mean, the 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 release of Harry Potter actually transforms the publishing industry, uh, and it supplants Stephen King. I mean, yes. that mm-hmm. probably happens in the. We're about to get to the point where some of that stuff is happening. Um, you know, the legal thriller genre is is huge already in the '80s, but it's going to overtake Stephen King and probably Michael Crichton at that point does too. Like with Jurassic yeah. Park,
0: I mean, yeah, certainly. Uh, by the time we hit Jurassic Park, the film, uh, yeah. right? We got the the techno thriller and the legal thriller, yeah. Um, and so those probably supplant King, but by
1: certainly by the time you get to like Harry Potter two, I would say that's you know J.K. Rowling is like the, I uh, you know the that the, the top person. This is a, a question from Emil. I don't I don't really want to read this question. I don't I don't find the uh, the the phrasing particularly. Uh, something I want to say no, this is not to, to, uh, insult Emil in any way, but there's a, um, familiarity to the, to the writing that I don't, I don't really want it to come out of my mouth. Uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, basically Emil is asking this question about that, uh, they are from, um, uh, Sweden. where is it? Sc- a Scandinavian country, yeah, a Scandinavian country. And they're saying, uh, that, uh, the, the reaction to the kind of uh, sex scene that we, that in it uh, is not as strong in other countries than the U.S. You know, that people from the U.S. Americans talk about it in a particular kind of way, whereas uh, in Scandinavia, apparently not as big of an issue. Uh, and this is a quote. I've cross-referenced this with my Asian relatives, and none have immediate recoil to this, as the Americans seem to have, at least in public. There's some interesting assumptions being made here, Emil that are public and, and private assumptions about our uh, feelings about this are different. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- so the question is, uh, uh, what's up with that basically is mm-hmm. the question. And I will say, I don't know. I'm, and I'm really only reading this question to say that's an interesting anecdote. You yeah. Know, I, I can't confirm this beyond your one question, but that is interesting that, that you perceive a difference worldwide in the reactions to that scene. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah. The thing that it made me think of is uh, the article from Castle Rock that actually goes over the Dutch edition of it uh, right. and points out all of the stuff that gets cut out, including this scene. Oh, interesting. Right? Like people in the Castle Rock newsletter are upset or rather the person who writes that article is extremely upset uh, that like, th- they say that Stephen King is being censored. Yeah. Right. And particularly like... Uh, with regard to this scene, and so I, I, you know that that was just my thought. I was like, oh, when this gets published in in the Netherlands, right? They just they cut this shit out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so so perhaps uh the uh, uh perhaps Emil, you are uh like anecdotally in a position in which that's not uh a concern, but obviously in, in the publishing industry in the Netherlands at least, right? Mm-hmm. More central central European, than Scandinavian, but. Uh they seem to feel a way about it. So I don't know. Interesting and I really only bring it up because that's interesting. I, I don't know mm-hmm. what to make of it. I'm not a cultural expert about Scandinavia. Um it, this is an interesting question. Uh that uh that, that I think I think we'll both have short answers to uh because yeah. I've actually been thinking about it. Um and I, I and this reads very similar to a review that we received recently that I've mentioned. Uh, but, uh, so this is from, it's not from anonymous, but they didn't sign their email. So we don't, we don't read your name. If you don't sign your email, quote, you devote significant parts of your episodes to talking about the racism, sexism, fat phobia, et cetera, of each work, often giving such negatives more focus than the individual positives and invariably lab- labeling them as deeply offensive, regardless of the transgression or your opinion on the work as a whole, given that you aren't exactly marginalized identities yourself.
0: Why do you give these topics and transgressions so much focus? It's how I read books. I mean, that's like the shortest possible answer, right? Is like, (laughs) I'm not doing something special here. Like, this is how I read everything that I come into contact with because I believe everything in the world is going to be made out of like good stuff and bad stuff, essentially. And like my job in the world is to think critically about the things around me and try to pull those pieces apart so I can get a better sense of what I think is good and what I think is bad.
1: I don't know. Like, I live in a world in which I'm I'm an educator- um you know we work on these podcasts michael um and you know especially things like I, all of these shows but you know things like game studies study buddies or homestuck made this world in which uh you know hopefully a clarity of communication and then a clarity about what the stakes are when you read a thing um is really important to me and like in stephen king you know i think part of the reason that we talk about things that um, are socially exclusionary, are uh, part of socially dominant modes of engagement, right? So systemic racism, uh, misogyny, fatphobia, any of that kind of stuff, right? The, the reason we focus in on those things is that those are real systems that we live in. And Stephen mm-hmm. King is part of the a, a monoculture or a mass culture that naturalizes those forms of exclusion mm-hmm. and then uh, replicates them. Mm-hmm. And part of what's fascinating about King is sometimes he's trying not to, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Right. Sometimes he's making an active effort. And again, like I said earlier, I think like Stephen King broadly is on on what I would consider to be the correct side of many issues, like broadly. In the sense that I think that he is for the liberation of human beings. The the issue with Stephen King that, that I have often is that what Stephen King envisions as liberation is not what I would consider liberation. I think he right. has a, a false mentality, which is basically like, what if it were the 1950s again um, mm-hmm. as liberation? And I don't think that's enough. Like, that's not good enough. And so, you know, I think most of our comments about Stephen King being bad on a particular thing or, or saying a thing that we find distasteful. And I don't want to speak for you, Michael. Tell me if you think this is wrong. But mm-hmm. uh, most of that is, is within that bubble. It's within the, the, the thing of I think Stephen King is generally on the right side for, in my opinion, of many issues, he just kind of fumbles what the imaginary could be on the other end, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because he's right. Like, hey, isn't it, it's important to write about how people talk in the world and to depict things in a way that feels right to the world? You know, this is mm-hmm. him talking about why does racism show up in his work that. OK, cool. Like I, I don't have any real problem with that. Um, the, 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 the issue is that he doesn't quite understand how to do that. So he ends up in trying to paint, say, a, a accurate real world picture of racism in, say, Mike Hanlon's pieces of it. Uh, he does that, but then he does that within a set of parameters that produces, um, deeply stereotypical black characters, not Mike Hanlon himself, weirdly enough, mm-hmm. uh, but lots of other characters, mm-hmm. um, right? Like. So he wants to show the system, but then he doesn't really do the work to show human beings, right? Um, in in those terms, right? And we're going to see him g- keep doing that. You know, something like John Coffee coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that, uh, or or what we just read, dead of homes, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Uh, like the additional bit that I have to add here, and I've mentioned this uh mm-hmm. very briefly, um, on previous like you know mainline episodes of this show, but like. Uh, one of the reasons I tend to go really hard on the fat phobia here is because I was a fat kid. I was right. a Ben Hanscom and like, you know, Stephen King is not solely at fault for the things that like happened to me or like happened in my head. Like the, you know, the the trajectory of my relationship with my weight is that I developed an eating disorder mm-hmm. um, and I had to work through that and uh, like. Stephen King is not solely responsible for that. There is an entire culture of uh, fat phobia that, uh, you know, entrains you in such a way to like weaponize your own thoughts and feelings about your body against you. Mm -hmm. Um, But like the close contact point for me was really Stephen King, because on the one hand, uh, he is this window for me to get outside of this uh, politically very conservative rural uh, uh, place that I live, right? He is this kind of um, image to me of uh, like, A big liberal celebrity who's like made it in the field that I want to make it in. He's very uh, uh, aspirational for me in that regard. Mm -hmm. And I'm this kid who's fat and is often being made fun of for being fat. And then here's Stephen King, who is sympathetic to fat people, but also can't help himself from talking about their fatness and in some cases, uh, connecting it with their deviance and in particular, uh, deviant sexuality, uh, in a couple of places. And it turns out I'm a young queer kid too. And the first experience I have of like seeing sexual relations like written about between men is a really fucked up scene in the stand. And that also like spins your mind out in a way that, uh, you know, I had to spend, several years of my life, like working through, where did all of these feelings, all of these complicated feelings about myself come from? Well, they came from, you know, the monoculture, right? Uh, But like also the, there's this thing that I love, which is Stephen King and all of his work. And that was like, there were spurs on that, right? There were parts of that, that hurt me. uh, And I cannot, like, I can't imagine, right? Rhetorically, but like, it puts me in a position where I have to think through like, okay, that was my experience being me. Uh, how does a black reader feel about seeing, uh, you know, Odetta Holmes and Detta Walker, right? right? How does a young girl feel when she's reading this book that casually talks about uh, how uh, seductive the body of a high school student is, right? Right. Um And or so – Right. right. Or younger. Right. Because that happens uh, in these books. And so like I like that's my relationship to reading. Right. It's like finding the things that work for me and the things that don't work for me and then trying to uh, uh, be accommodating and sort of think through like what are where is this hitting other people in ways that it hit me. Right. Mm-hmm. How can we uh, uh, understand kind of the the things that aren't great here uh, while still insisting that there was something here that was good or that worked or that moved us uh, because like, that's, you know, that's kind of my uh, orientation to this show, but also basically all the shows we do at range touch. Like I think there's good and bad in everything. And like our work is about like our work, you know, in general, I'm kind of universalizing here in the world is about trying to figure out what we think is good and bad and then acting on those things. Yeah. Uh, The next question. Hey, folks, one of the load-bearing structures you've identified in King's work is a sort of recurring moral logic. Evil, in those who work it, may steal away a few wins and cause real harm, but in the end, the light will overcome it. Often, this will be because of some weakness intrinsic to evil itself or the arrogance of its minions or a fatal flaw in its plan, etc. Um, the question goes on saying like you know I, i'm guessing for for the two of you uh that this probably isn't how we think that the world works uh and uh you know the, the question writer agrees like i also am a materialist i believe that you know things happen in the world and so on uh you know evil often goes unpunished and and things like that nevertheless these stories rip yeah sometimes i am annoyed and it does feel facile other times the grand reversal is hype as well and i love to see the forces of light rally and come together. Where do y'all fall on this? And what's happening here from like a cultural production and consumption standpoint? Y'all talk about uh, a lot about Steve being the great writer of the mid century bourgeois. How do you think this moral logic fits into all of that? My own suspicions are pretty cynical, but I'd love to hear your takes. Uh, Austin.
1: Damn.
0: Yep. I mean, I
1: got to agree. It's fucking cool to see evil get blown up.
0: I thought immediately of Jackson's tweet. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't. Jackson uh, head falls off on Twitter from uh, Mm -hmm. the Abnormal Mapping Podcast Network. Check them out. Uh, The uh, uh, Jackson has this uh, tweet that goes around occasionally uh, that I'm just going to read to you here now. Me. I am fundamentally opposed to the monarchy and the church's ruling powers. History is a record of their atrocities. My therapist. That's fair. Me, but I love it when the chosen king reclaims his divine sword and leads his army in glorious battle. My therapist, who doesn't? (laughs) Right? It's kind of like that for me in the sense of. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, like I, I, I would say maybe king's tendency for evil to defeat itself is, um, He can do it in good and bad ways, right? Like I think, like for instance, I think the Overlook Hotel blowing itself up works. Oh, Uh, yeah, it's rad. It's so good. Right. And it's like it's such a it's such a good example of this. Right. The hotel is like this greedy, horrible thing that becomes so fixated on its own desires that it forgets to, you know, it forgets that it's like a it actually has like a physical sort of place of embodiment that needs to be cared for or whatever. Right. It's great. Uh, not so great is the stand where the literal hand of God comes down to poke a nuke. Um yeah. uh so that yeah like sometimes it 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 can work and also it can really not work yeah
1: aragorn Uh, coming over the, or no gandalf coming over the hill right mm -hmm. helms deep in their time of need it's cool like it's rad it's a it's a cool thing to like have good win out right which is not a thing that happens all that often in the real world right like um, and Stephen King says this, Stephen King is very explicit in the eighties in a lot of interviews being like, look, I, I write endings that do this. And I think it showed up in the it chapter two special features that I was watching. I think that's where it was. We're reading Stephen King talking about, um, about it, uh, or not readings, but listening to Stephen King, like more contemporarily, like 2019 talking about, it. and he recasts it entirely as a moral fable. Um, You know it's all about the good and the bad and the idea that like children you know these people who are oppressed you know violated um, there are figures in their life who have infinite more power than them and you just can't do anything you know children are extremely vulnerable as like a class of people Mm -hmm. Um, and and the idea that like something that is existential and murderous and terrible and uh, has its evil fingers and all the things that hurt them that that can be defeated. You know that 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 that's a powerful story, and that's you know how he recasts um, it. You know, in the more contemporary period, it's just a, a straight up moral fable um, that holds out for good winning in the end, and that's rad. Like it's super cool. Um, you know, the engine of misery with Annie Wilkes, like just not being able to hold it together. You know, mm-hmm. and and Paul Sheldon, who kind of sucks, right? He's not not a great <laughs> dude. Uh, uh, but Paul Sheldon, who kind of sucks, being able to get you know get out of the thing alive. And I know I felt like that was like unearned, and I do think that like the, the politics of disability at the end of that are just like, pfft, you know, like no good, no bueno. Uh, but uh, but like the idea that like you know she put the barbecue there, the thing that she did to him to torture him is the thing that gets her you know defeated, right? Killed, smushed. Mm-hmm. It's rad. It's cool. It's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Sorry, I, I could just go I, I think I could
0: just talk for another fifteen minutes about
1: yeah. random good shit that happens at the end of Stephen King. But it feels good. Yeah, I think right. that's
0: right. Well, and like the the second part of that question then from Austin is, you know, like what is happening here from a cultural production and consumption standpoint? Um, you know, like what how does this fit into uh, King being kind of the mid century bourgeois novelist?
1: Uh yeah, especially there? especially now or, or you know, contemporary to the moment we are now, you know, the the mid eighties. Uh, Mm -hmm. in which uh, the, 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 you know, the evil empire is reigning. Uh Uh, uh, You know, just the flip, flip, flip who it is. Um, (laughs) The, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's the idea that like the most cynical, the most cynical we could be, right, is that uh, Stephen King in the 80s is palliative care for the liberal consensus that is slowly but surely being choked out underneath Reaganism. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. That like, hey, if we just hold out long enough, the good's going to win out. I I do think that that's a big part of Stephen King being such a powerful voice in like hashtag resistance stuff in the Trump years as well. Right. Like Mm -hmm. uh, he is a beacon in the dark for uh, liberalism as as an ideology and as a mode of governance uh, in its darkest hour. Um, Mm -hmm. Because it holds out that, you know, the arc of 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 history leans towards justice. Right. Mm-hmm. you know pushes I forget the exact quotation but you know what I'm talking about right and I don't know if I think that's true <laughs> you know like on a fundamental level uh, I, I don't know but it feels good to think about it feels good to hope for I don't know what do you think
0: Um, I mean I, I kind of agree with that right like I, I don't know if I have anything other than kind of the cynical reading of it uh, in the sense of I think that that's like I think that's why that narrative gets produced, and I think that's why it's attractive. Uh, in in kind of its moment, it'll be interesting to see uh, in what ways like the recognition of it changes as as history continues to move forward. Um, but I already said, you know, Stephen King for me in in the context where I grew up was kind of this uh, uh, this beacon, right? Uh, the, exactly what you're talking about, this kind of light in the darkness, um, and. I don't know, like, the in some ways, the arc of my political awakening is coming to realize, like, that, <laughs> like, I had to go beyond Stephen King to get to the world that I actually wanted to exist.
1: Right, yeah. I I think that's right. That's, I, and, you know, I'll say this, of the other people that I knew who were Stephen King at the time, uh, you know, because, uh, God, we, I mean, similar to you, but right, the, just the deep nightmare political realm i grew up in right mm-hmm. uh you know just uh, totalizing and and uh suffocating and violent and racist and uh mm-hmm. you know uh, oppressive they're just true like in the cl- classic capital o oppression right uh in, in a general sense uh, across every axis you could imagine uh and you know growing up as a teenager and stephen king uh, allows you to see that or at least allowed me to see that better right to get a sense of it even and uh, similarly like Uh, eventually you got hopefully you got to realize you got to go beyond Stephen King Stephen King's like political horizon is not sufficient to like like I said earlier generate liberation for human beings Uh, Mm -hmm. but I will say like the other people that uh, I knew reading Stephen King at that time contemporarily uh, overwhelmingly queer um, you know and I don't know I haven't talked to those people in years um, but I I imagine that has to be something important for them. Right. That like there was, there was somewhere that was not where we were that they could. Yes. Uh, Mm -hmm. in a way that, that, that people lived, that was not the way that we were. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, so I, I don't, you know, I don't credit Stephen King with, uh, helping them through that necessarily. I think there was a lot of places to go for that, but it, it had to be there. Right. It had to be in, in the mix for sure. Mm. hmm Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, yeah. I, I'd rather have Stephen King than not have him. Yeah, same. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so maybe that answers your question, Austin. Uh, this is the next question from uh, Mike Noise. Uh, uh, Mike uh, does the podcast uh, Random X of Cinema, which I was on recently. Uh, and uh, it's a good show. We we talked about The Game, the David Fincher film. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Uh, no, the one that you've just lost right now. Yes, that's what it, my, <laughs> was my
0: immediate thought. It was like, oh, shit. <laughs> uh,
1: the, uh, but this is from Mike Noise. He says, uh, I really enjoyed the Show episode, and I was curious if you were planning on covering some of the other oddities, like Nightmares in the Sky, Ghost Brothers of Darkling County, Charlie the Choo-Choo, or American Vampire. Keep up the great work. Keep doing it for Steve. Thanks, thanks for listening, Mike. Um, I don't know. I don't know what some of these are.
0: Uh, I mean, Nightmares in the Sky is the coffee table book on gargoyles, which you and I have talked about doing before, but I looked into it and I, my impression, I, maybe I should still try to acquire a copy, but my impression is that, like, the actual writing in those is limited to just captions, Mm. so I don't know if there would be much to talk about.
1: Maybe we do it and we just, like, cram it into five minutes at the end of another episode.
0: Yeah, maybe. Uh, Charlie the Choo Choo, I, like, I think we will have read Charlie the Choo Choo by dint of having read The Wastelands. Uh, American Vampire is a comic series that Steve mm. wrote a couple of issues for back in like 2010.
1: Well, so I, uh, this is the one thing I am actually familiar with. He didn't even write issues. He wrote oh. backup stories for I think the first trade. Um, oh. so, so like maybe 24 total pages. Maybe he wrote more after that, but I was reading American Vampire when it came out. I uh, actually wrote a kind of a negative review of American Vampire, like on a blog at the time, and the writer like came out of the woodwork to tell me I was wrong. Oh, it was boy. like a 20-year-old. Uh, <laughs> look, I get it. It totally makes sense. And uh, he's gone on to write some really great comics. I think American Vampire is a very good comic, but uh, it was all, it was a very strange experience that I had. Yeah. Um, but so I've read those, and I would say probably not. I'm probably not. Yeah. We're probably not covering those.
0: Yeah. Ghost Brothers of Darkland County is the musical that he wrote with John Mellencamp. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which we talked which, about in the bonus
1: episode for the going to the Shining Opera.
0: Yes. Uh, I Maybe we can revisit that. I don't know how we would if there's like another staging of it or something. I've seen it. Not great. Check out the Shining uh, Opera bonus episode to hear more about, I don't know, whatever I said about Ghost Brothers of Darkland County then.
1: I think in a broad and general sense, if there's a live production that we can go to reasonably of a Stephen King thing will go. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, but mm-hmm. other than that, like carry the musical, I'll go. If I if, if i can watch it. Uh Ghost Brothers of Darkland County, similar deal. You know? But yeah. other than that, I I don't think I'm interested in watching like a like a, a VHS rip of Ghost Brothers of Darkland County or whatever. <laughs> uh <laughs> What did we see? What was being redone? Oh, was it The Shining play as being done in England, in London?
0: Oh, uh, no. Um, Wait, yes. God, yeah, there's something being done on the West End. What the hell was it? Maybe we'll try to check that out. Yeah. We'll see. I don't remember now if it was The Shining or something else. Maybe was it the Misery stage adaptation?
1: Maybe that was it. I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, we'll figure it out Mike also wrote a book I just want to give a shout out Before we go to the next question Mike wrote a book That's called um, seven, seven, year, uh, seven Days Seven Years It's kind of a self-published uh, Piece of fiction It's a little It's a little dark towery A little kingy uh, He actually pitched it to me I think when we were off air In uh, the episode And I read it uh, That was pretty good Awesome just a, little, just a little shout out. I It's a good piece of genre fiction. I think it's got some kingisms in it that I'm not super happy with. Uh, I mean, not, not even not happy with, but I thought, this is the kingisms coming through, Mike. Come on here. Uh, come on with your uh, everyone's just sexually attracted to this main character guy. What's going on with that, Mike? <laughs> but I thought it was a good little story if you're into reading some like uh, self-published things it's on Kindle. If you want to mm-hmm. check that out. Uh, I, had, I had a good time reading it. Uh, I was mm-hmm. not mad to do so. Uh, fun little genre story.
0: Vivian writes in to ask, uh, I believe you were asked this last time, but I am curious if your answer has changed in the last year. What book are you each now most uh, looking forward to and why? Thanks for the excellent show and keep doing it for I Steve.
1: Hmm. I don't know. What's your answer to that? Yeah. You have I'm a pocket answer
0: i i do uh and i don't know if it's changed from last time i honestly don't remember what i said last time i don't either so that's that's a a benefit of doing these a year
1: apart (laughs) (laughs)
0: uh but i'm probably most interested in uh uh, from a buick eight because that's kind of of the like 90s 2000s king that's kind of my favorite of that of that batch i think
1: well tommy knockers was mine um and uh we're reading it right now, or I'm reading it. You
0: haven't mm-hmm. finished it, right? Uh, no, I'm in in the middle of it still. Uh,
1: so I'm gonna say I was right. Uh, it's fucking rad. Uh, you know, I can't, I don't want to say too much about it, but that was the one I was looking for. And uh, golly gee whiz, I was right on that one. Uh, that book <laughs> is uh, truly fascinating and good to talk about. So, but we're about to do it. So I guess I need to pick another one. Uh, I guess I'm curious. I'm very curious. Oh, desperation, probably. Mm. Not even in terms of looking forward to yeah, looking forward. always a little bit weird because it's like, am I looking forward to reading it? Probably not because it's really long. Uh, mm-hmm. And I remember it kind of dragging in terms of talking about it with you. <laughs> very curious about what we come to talk about. And also the regulators, too. I think the regulators is the worst Stephen King novel by mm-hmm. a wide margin in my yeah. in my memory. Right. And I haven't read them mm-hmm. all. You know, I'm I'm missing some of the more recent ones, uh, yeah. but in my memory and in mind, The Regulators is like the bottom of the barrel, one of the worst things that Stephen King has ever put to paper. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm very curious about both of them. I'm, I'm curious about the duology. I'm curious about that like weird character replication thing that goes on there. I'm curious about working through both of those in the Just King Things method. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like that's going to be September and October of 2023. So that's my answer. cool. <laughs> I don't I don't think I read from Abiutgate. Really? I don't think okay. so. That that might be around when I... Uh, no, I must have. I must have read it. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think I stopped reading At the Dark Tower okay. in 2004. Yeah. I think that's the last like chronological as they came out book that
0: I read. Oh, okay. Well, that so brings so us into the next question. And I kind of stopped after that. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Mitch writes in, "You have both mentioned not having caught up uh, with a lot of recent King. What is the newest King book that you have read? Are there any modern King pieces that you haven't read that you are looking forward to reading in a few years, either from the premise or from reputation?" Hmm.
1: I don't know what uh, what's the most recent one you've read.
0: Uh, I've said this before, but just to reiterate, the last new Stephen King book that I read was Duma Key.
1: Oh, uh, so that's two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the list here. The last, most recent, because basically I was Stephen King complete, uh, it looks like up to 2004. Uh, and uh, then I've just kind of sampled back from there. So I've read, I'll just read off from like after that period what I have read. Uh, I've read uh, Cell, Just After Sunset, Under the Dome, Full Dark, No Stars, 11 63 Went Through the Keyhole, Doctor Sleep, revival and that's it that's the most recent one so it looks like the most recent one i've read is revival
0: mm. 2014 and in, terms, in terms of which one i'm looking forward to the most of the ones i haven't read just like you know looking through it here mm-hmm. uh so the honest answer is that there's nothing post duma key that i'm just really like champing at the bit to read um You know, none of them have quite that attraction to me in in kind of a general sense. Mm. Uh, But I am interested, like, you know, I'm I'm sort of conceptually or theoretically interested in Doctor Sleep probably the most, if only because of my feelings about The Shining. Yeah. Like, uh, that being one of my favorite King books. Uh, But then, weirdly enough, I have come to be, like, I cannot uh, overstate how... Uninterested I was in eleven twenty two sixty three when it happened. Um, but having done this show, I am now just like okay, finally, like we will get a payoff for this JFK thing.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, it's like his whole career is laser targeted to it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm going to say there are some good Stephen King books after Dimickey. Under the Dome, you are going to like. Mm-hmm. I can feel it. I can feel it in my bones. Uh, I think the only thing people talk about in terms of it now is like the Dick Cheney shit. Yeah. Uh, and to be fair, Dick Cheney's in it, right? Yeah. Like, there's a dude who's just small town Dick Cheney and that's very entertaining, but there's like a whole other very interesting science fiction novel in there. In uh, the last 150 pages are awesome. Like truly awesome. Uh, in a way that is like unpredictable. So I liked it. Eleven twenty two sixty three 63 is also a very good science fiction story. Uh, just straight up, even beyond the JFK st- stuff, which is cool um, and important, and I also am more interested in that. But like that, that novel uh, is really cool. Doctor Sleep is good. I liked Revival. Uh, hmm. I, it's kind of weird. It's like not a novel. It's just some stuff that happens to a person. <laughs> like <laughs> it's kind of like Bride of Frankenstein too. It's just it's a it's a 1950s B movie. Interesting. Uh, you no, know, it's not Bride of Frankenstein. Bride of Frankenstein's a classic. But like it's Stephen King doing a Bride of Frankenstein via a Corman film. It's not, you know, it's like a thing that, that feels like a blown-up short story, but it's like it's fun. I had a good time reading it. So uh but I will say the one that I'm probably most like uh anticipating in those terms of like haven't read but I'm curious about is The Outsider. Hmm. Um because I've watched that miniseries and thought it was really right. good, and I'm very curious about what, what adaptive maneuvers were made there mm-hmm. uh, uh, in a novel that I haven't really heard very, very many people talk about. Yeah, you know, that's like, true. Hmm. Like these other novels people talk about occasionally. Um, I'll, I will be honest. I'm not particularly um, jazzed about the GWindy's novels. No. Um, I'm very curious about them since they seem to be kind of um, – uh, fanfic and I don't mean that in a bad way at all but like they're they're kind of about going to closed off parts of the Stephen King corpus and like kind of blowing them up and doing more stuff with them I know yeah. they go back to Castle Rock at some point and Derry so it's like yeah. a, like a Stephen King romp novel I don't know how that's gonna be
0: uh, right I mean and co-written with a Stephen yeah. King fan collaborator a BNF Right. The definition of BNF. <laughs> yes, really, truly. Yeah, Chismar is the definition of BNF for, for this little circle of the world.
1: Yeah. So anyway, that, that's the answer. Thanks for the question, Mitch. Uh, you want me to read the next one? Sure. Okay, this is from Simon. Uh, big fan of the show. Starting with it, I began reading along with the podcast and coming across the phrase in misery prompted this question. I've used the phrase close enough for government work for years now, despite never hearing anyone else use it, especially here in the UK. Coming across it in misery reminded me that this is one of King's stock phrases and that I must have picked it up as a teen reading The Dark Tower. I think Eddie says it a lot. Cannot confirm. I can't remember. That's my parenthetical. So, my question is, are there any kingisms or King stock phrases that have crept into your everyday vernacular, either from your early readings of King or as a result of doing the podcast? This from Simon
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, yeah, close enough for government work is like kind of an a, an insult. It's like a <laughs> hating the government <laughs> ass insult. <laughs> yeah, that's like, hey, I kind of did this, but in a shitty way, but that's totally cool. <laughs> that's kind uh, of it's what it means. It's kind of pretty pretty rude
0: Got kind of, a kind of dim view of the government's capability of doing stuff, I guess. Right. Uh I will occasionally say Fish, as I think um, I mentioned on the drawing of the three episode. Uh also, and these are like not in any way particular like king isms, but I know for a fact that like king is where I picked them up. Uh I will say Jesum Crow and Fuckeroe, uh not infrequently.
1: I, yeah, I don't think I have any Stephen King isms that, that are just like King if there are I don't know what they are,
0: you know? Mm-hmm. 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 Um, yeah, I just I just know for whatever reason, like I read Richie Tozier saying Jesus crow 50 billion times when I was 12 years old. And I was like, I think I'm going to pick this up.
1: Yeah, I don't think I mean, there were there were uh, language affectations that I had in my youth. Uh, Like I called things that were cool boss for a long time. Mm hmm. <laughs> like i just, like on purpose i was like that's a uh-huh. cool word i'm gonna like a little aj soprano yeah kind yeah kind of <laughs> uh yeah i was like i was probably too, i was probably in college when i was doing that in late high school college i would just be like oh boss i should bring that back. i should keep doing that uh but uh i don't think i have any that are just straight but fucker fuckery is like a thing to say that's like funny mm-hmm. i mean like i'll fuck- say it to you quite often <laughs> <laughs> we use the words fucker and fuckery all the time <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, uh, but I can't think of anything I mean I'm sure there's something but and I'm sure that in the show you've probably heard me use something it's a kingism uh, it's so sublimated that I don't know what it is
0: mm-hmm. I'm constantly and whenever I'm dancing out of the uh, beach on a moonlit night I often say you know a chum or something like that
1: right 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 uh, I say baby can you love your man all the time <laughs> baby can you dig your
0: man I'm so sorry
1: uh, thanks for the question Simon uh, I'll read the next one too. Mm-hmm. This is from Runa. I think that's right. I apologize for it It is not Runa, but I believe it is Runa. I've enjoyed the Just King Things method a lot so far and listened to your Lawnmower Man bonus episode. Got to thinking about the games that took inspiration from King's work. I know the list of officially inspired or adapted King's stories in video games is pretty short, but I'm sure there are traces of his influence in dozens upon dozens of games I've played, whether directly through his work or indirectly through its adaptations. Could you both talk a bit about what, if any, sort of influence you've noticed from King's oeuvre on video games, horror and otherwise? Thanks, as always, and look forward to hearing what answers issue from The Sewer. It's a great question.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They're all good questions. I don't know.
0: Alan I mean, Wake. I, yeah, I was <laughs> gonna say the number number one, I think, for like Stephen King inspired inspired video game is gotta be Alan Wake.
1: Uh hey, this is a good place to put it. It's not in the documentary. If you haven't watched it, we we made a documentary where we went to see the Stephen King uh uh Shining Opera uh by not Neville Dean and Taylor, but <laughs> uh god what i've, I've got it
0: on my wall i'm waiting to see if you'll come up with it i can't i can't it's, i have moravec such a hard and campbell
1: moravec and campbell it's it's something about the cadence moravec right. and campbell neville gene and taylor right? i just like,
0: remember the guy who invented self-perpetuating robots in the soup great
1: <laughs> that's of course the thing yeah uh the uh But anyway, so uh, when we did that, I cut it out of the documentary proper because you just had to cut down a lot of footage. You know, we had like hours and hours of footage. Uh, And also without a front facing camera, it made no sense. It was just us talking about some random thing, which I guess is what a podcast is. Uh, But it didn't work in visual form. Uh, But when we were driving into Estes Park, there is a power station in Estes Park that looks exactly like the power station in Alan Wake. (laughs) <laughs> like visually it is identical. oh
0: Yes, I remember because you pass it as you're coming in.
1: Yeah, and I, and I thought, like what? number one, I you know, I'm not uh you know Finnish, I'm not Northern European. Maybe their power stations look like that too, and that's just a <laughs> reference. But power stations don't look like the Allen Wake power station in the United States. they They got a different vibe to them. It's mm-hmm. like this kind of weirdly almost gothic architecture looking thing. It's like a little substation, I guess, for SS mm-hmm. Park being that it, you know it was kind of cut off uh from um the rest of the grid, probably for a long time, I don't know. I don't know the history of that that town but but I was like, "Oh my gosh, you think they came here and then they like noted how cool that thing looked and they wanted to replicate it. I don't know, but anyway mm-hmm. that's that's beside the point, but it's very kingy in a lot of ways. um, I can't really think I guess the um uh I think Resident Evil Seven is pretty kingy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know on the on the on the front cover it's uh you know in terms of like what's on the surface there Texas chainsaw massacre, but like person is compelled to do a thing, gets involved in this big kind of plot line it felt very kind of king esque to me across the whole work and also has mm-hmm. a terrible ending, which is uh you know part and parcel. I don't know what else is kind of kingy I mean, there's, uh, there's a little bit
0: uh. BioShock, yeah, no, actually, BioShock is like the first BioShock is is explicitly modeled on uh the The Shining, um, yeah, yeah, in, in multiple I'm, ways. The New Year's yeah, I'm Eve a party, a big and everything. Big thing on BioShock
1: right now, and I'm, I'm getting that in there.
0: Yeah, um, uh, I think that there is no small amount of Stephen King in Silent Hill. Uh, or at least the first Silent Hill game. But like the thing about Silent Hill is it's also like got so much other influence uh, Mm -hmm. folded into it that uh, it obscures the king a little bit. I think the other influences kind of overshadow him. Mm -hmm. Kindergarten, but obviously being one of them. Yeah. Uh, Trying to think of anything else that might have occurred to me as like Stephen Kingy.
1: Yeah, I tried to, because uh, I, I read these, you know, yesterday, and uh, I tried to think about this, and I could, couldn't come up with a huge amount. Um, I mean, I do think that there is a, um, in the way that Stephen King has impacted popular literature, I think he's really influential uh, mm-hmm. in terms of, like, a horror story can end with a boss battle, and that's <laughs> not weird. You know, and Stephen King, qu- quite literally, right? That could just happen. Yeah. Uh, and that's not strange. And I know that that's also part of like horror film and things like that. But I, I think Stephen King gives you permission to have a little bit of a literary approach like Alan Wake, right? This kind of literary approach to the doing of the thing. But then you can still have a boss battle and that's not weird mm-hmm. because it's like part and parcel of the thing. But I don't know. I wish I had a better answer for you. Uh, that's all I got. Mm-hmm.
0: Jamie writes in love the show. Long time. First time. I've got a pretty basic question, but think your answers might be interesting. What has been your favorite book so far and why? Likewise, what has been your least favorite book so far and why was it the talisman?
1: Did I say the talisman was my least favorite book?
0: I don't think uh, I did. No, I don't think you did. I don't think I did either. I think I think Jamie just wants to suggest that we seem to go pretty hard on the talisman.
1: I just didn't like it. It's just not a good book. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry.
0: Like, the <laughs> thing about the talisman is that it's got some, like, it's got maybe, like, four or five really, uh, you know, firecracker ideas in it, and none of them really go off.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. Like, there's a better book in the. Ta- and I think that's why, I, because The Talisman is a book that we've heard a lot of people say something like this about, right? Like, mm-hmm. really like The Talisman. Just, you know, I don't think anyone said they were disappointed, but they were surprised maybe that we didn't like it as much as they did. I think it's a book that if you read it at the right age, it probably is extremely impactful for you. And I think I didn't read it, you know, I read it a little bit after maybe it would have hit me that hard. And mm-hmm. rereading it doesn't bring up like feelings of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it just doesn't it's not central to king for me mm-hmm. um weirdly enough in the way that black house actually is central to king for me because i did read it at a you know that kind of right time mm-hmm. um but uh or maybe i just liked it more i don't know anyway uh, the Talisman's not my favorite i think the talisman at the end of this episode we're gonna rank our things right um mm-hmm. we're gonna rank oh, our, I forgot we were doing that <laughs> i did too so we'll have to take a little break uh before we finish recording the episode to do it uh but uh at the end of this episode we're gonna rank, and I think the talisman's gonna be in the in the middle for me. It's not the worst. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah. but that I don't want to focus on the negative in this question. What's been your favorite book, Michael?
0: Um just like limiting myself to like what is my favorite on account of the reread, definitely Cujo.
1: Yeah, I think it's gotta be Kujo too. Yeah. Like by a wide margin. hmm Um I'm looking at the list here. Um yeah, that's it. I just straight up <laughs> like it's Cujo, it's Rad. I think Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, those are all still really high on my list. I think the more surprising thing for me is what's low on the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll talk about that at the end of the episode. All right.
0: Uh, OK, someone uh, again, we don't uh, we won't say your name if you don't sign just because uh, sometimes, you know, those things aren't uh, like what is on your email address is not actually what your name is and things like that. Yeah. Uh, so Anonymous writes in uh, and says, thought of another question for the question sewer as discussed uh, not once on the podcast. King's on record for sometimes failing to arrive at a perfect title for a novel right from the start. Uh, what is uh what king working title would it be the weirdest to actually see unchanged on the finished project does Dreamcatcher have an edge on Eyes of the Dragon in this regard Um Eyes of the Dragon uh go back to that episode the original title there was The Napkins Uh <laughs> Dreamcatcher's original title if I'm remembering correctly was just Cancer
1: Yeah Um I don't know I the, I I mean I guess I I appreciate the question I don't think I have a good answer to this because I don't know Mm -hmm. enough of these original titles and I just have such like a, um, my experience with this kind of thing is thin, Mm -hmm. but substantive in the sense of like finding the right title for a thing. You know, mine has mostly been in journalism, right? Which is figuring out your head, Mm -hmm. but that is such a group process that is sometimes arbitrary and sometimes not uh it's sometimes by committee and sometimes just someone's vibe right like mm-hmm. is such a uh that a title is so important and yet so arbitrary <laughs> yeah that it's real i don't know i don't have a good answer i i like i don't and i haven't really thought too hard about about uh, these so it's a good question but yeah, not I'm, I'm actually,
0: actually just going to go with the napkins because I feel like that's such a so on the one hand, this is King, you know, publishing that book in the 1980s, where like the stereotype of the horror pulp paperback is, uh, you know, the something, right? right. The crabs, like the night of the crabs or like the blood moon or whatever. So like Stephen King's the napkins. On the one hand, I think that would have a really funny, cool resonance. On the other hand, just the idea of a fantasy novel being called the, like, I guess any novel, like any novel that's not like some sort of uh, uh, <laughs> more traditional, like non-supernatural, like bourgeois thing that is about, I don't know, the, the trials and tribulations of a maid in late 19th century England. Um, a book, any any book that is not that being called The Napkins is just such a funny idea to me.
1: Well, I think I've, cho- maybe I haven't brought this up. Uh, the reason that I'm not like a Peter Straub person is that I picked up Floating Dragon when I was like around this age. Because I knew, I guess oh. I knew it from Black House, right? And so I picked up Floating Dragon and I read like the first 20 pages. And I was like, this is not about fucking dragons. <laughs> it's not a fantasy novel at all.
0: It's just about all the stuff Stephen King is going to steal from Peter Straub over the next 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> but I did
1: have that, I did have that experience. And I was like I'm never reading any of this shit again. <laughs> Fuck you, Peter Straub. I'm a teen. Um but uh but so so uh, yeah, titles are important. I don't have I don't have strong opinions on mm-hmm. that one. The napkins is a good answer. I'll read the next one. It's from anonymous. Dear Honchos. I have now read almost every book along with you in the second year of doing it for Steve. Curious about which ones you didn't read, by the way. That's my parenthetical. Back to the question. Subsequently, I have become known to my friends as, quote, the guy who's always reading Stephen King, end quote, which has resulted in people making a little fun of me, telling me about haunted cars and whatnot. My question is, do people in your lives know about this podcast? How do the people react when they ask, what are you reading lately? And you always say Stephen King. Thank you for all your work. Well, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm. And I have a second question too that I'll ask after we answer this one.
0: Okay. Um, no, no one in my life knows about this podcast. I keep all of this stuff secret from everyone. They think I'm just an accountant. <laughs> uh
1: people know that I do this. I don't think I don't think people in my life, other than my very brave wife, of course, I don't think people have a sense of how successful it
0: is. <laughs> Like,
1: po- positive or negative, right? I don't think they have a sense of... like. I think when I say, oh, I have to record a podcast, I think that most of the people in my life think he's he's going to do his foolish thing again. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't think they understand that there are, like, quite a few people listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I don't really talk about reading the Stephen King it doesn't really come up very often. People don't really don't ask me what are you reading. going <laughs> say, people, in everyone
0: in my life learned a long, long time ago not to ask me what I've been reading lately.
1: I, I don't think. Oh, I don't think. I don't think there's been like a lesson learned or anything. I just that's not a thing that we talk about. Most of my, uh, like friends, you know, at work. Well, so number one, big chunk of my friends are like uh, people who are not physically close to me, right? Like their friends from college or their friends who are like. Uh, Coworkers that I've had in the past or whatever who I've kept up with and so my friends are not uh, uh like locally oriented and so we don't have to make small talk right? Right. you know what I mean like when I talk to my friends it's like oh hey what's going on in your life or like getting together to do something you know so mm-hmm. um and what are you reading lately is normally like a small small talk kind of thing so that's number one yeah. I, at work I work in an academic setting and so we talk about the goofiest bullshit possible You know what I mean? Like the other day I had a long conversation about like as a small talk conversation about the section of R.A. Judy's new book where he cites William James and works through the relationship between William James and uh, Du Bois and like how that fits into the James archive. (laughs) And that was like small talk that we were talking about because we both read the book for a book club. Mm hmm. And you know what I mean? And so like that, that, that's the kind of like academic and like, that's a thing that no one cares about. Like in the world, there's a reason that we did that we're academics is because we care about these things that no one else cares about. Mm -hmm. Like William James, which I don't even (laughs) care about. Just the guy I was talking to cares about William James. And so like, I, you know what I mean? Like that's just not, so I, this is my whole way of dodging the question. Um, and like my wife doesn't read any of this stuff. She she doesn't really read Stephen King. She has in the past, but I don't think Stephen King's like a bit, I, no, I, not I don't think Stephen King is not an important author for her, even in a, a little bit. I would say that she reads much more contemporary fiction, much more contemporary literary fiction, um, and like contemporary bestsellers. So she has her finger to the pulse of like an entire reading culture that I don't know anything about. Um, and reads also. I think I've said this before. She reads. 15 times faster than i do and so she closes out 200 novels a year or something like that um (laughs) you know what i mean so it's just like the the pace that she reads too is just like bewildering to me um which is all to say uh this doesn't come up and people don't i think they think when i'm like oh I, i need to leave i'm recording in the morning i think they think like oh he's gonna go do his little hobby
0: yeah, I Which would I guess say was my son, sinc- kind of my little hobby. <laughs> yeah, no, my my sincere answer is, yeah, like m- m- the people that I like live around know that I do this, like my, you know, immediate sort of like family, my wife and everything. Uh, but I- apart from my wife, I don't think for most Almost everyone else. My wife understands that this is like work and part of my job and everything for about everyone else. I think if I say I'm going to go read a Stephen King book or like record a podcast, uh, it's a little bit like me saying, well, I'm going to go study some moon rocks for a while.
1: Right, right. Exactly. (laughs) I'm going to go work on my model trains. I think that's Uh how it gets taken, which is fine. That's totally cool. Uh, I don't think very many people like in my I don't think anyone in my life listens to the show. Uh, I know or, that,
0: or, uh, my mother-in-law has listened to a few episodes and she liked it, but she's not a, like, she's not a big podcast person, so. Did she write it, did she write it five stars? Uh, I think this was, like, very early on. I should go back and I should harass her to, to yeah. write some things. Well, yeah. please don't
1: harass your mother-in-law, but you should say five <laughs> stars. And then yeah. I'll read the review. Tell her to write a review and I'll read it on the show. Okay. Uh, that I am Michael's mother-in-law. And I'm here to say, um... <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, so uh, that's the thing I don't get. Uh, I, I will say I've become an evangelist for Maximum Overdrive. And so mm. people, when they start shitting on Stephen King, or like the movies are, and weirdly enough, Maximum Overdrive does come up a lot in my life. You know, it's kind of the thing of like you buy a new car and you start seeing it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's like a phenomenon that people report. Um, yeah. the, uh, that's, I think that's what happened with Maximum Overdrive. I watched Maximum Overdrive and became radicalized about it. And then uh, now, anytime it comes up, I have to be like, well, number one, it's a good movie. Number Mm two, that David Lynch story is bullshit. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, uh, so second question that we've gotten from Anonymous. I've often thought about pursuing a higher degree in comparative literature or a related field, but I have dyslexia and I'm sure if I would be able to read fast enough to keep up with the workload. Do you have any advice on if a PhD would be feasible for me? Um, I don't know. I uh, that's a great question. I would say um, there there are two things to to maybe three things to keep in mind about that. Uh, number one, uh, getting a job in comparative literature is very 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 hard. So unless you are moneyed or independently wealthy or some sort of landed gentry, um, if you are thinking about getting that degree to go get a job teaching in that field, you should know that the odds are stacked against you, even if you go to Uh, You know, like a Stanford or Mm -hmm. a Ivy League program, Uh, your likelihood of being employed doing that is still very low. So you should really think about that before we even think about, you know, ability here. Uh, Answer number two is you should talk to people with dyslexia who are in Ph.D. programs. I I went to I had uh, people in my program. There were people in my program who had dyslexia. Um, and I, they talked about it. I don't know if it prevented them from doing all, you know, the required work or whatever. I'm sure it, uh, impacted them, but they were in the program with me. Uh, and I, and, uh, they're younger than me. So, um, Mm -hmm. the person I'm thinking of in particular. And so I, they haven't finished yet, but I don't think that was, uh, um, I think it's just like a program timing thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, The third thing I would say is that uh, if uh, every university has access and accommodations, uh, any disability um, thinker is going to tell you, obviously, access and accommodations is not sufficient, right, to addressing Mm -hmm. the realities of the world, right? They are often uh, there partially at least to cover uh, the university's liability right? Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, the access and accommodations does exist. And so they exist at the PhD level. Um, And uh, if that's a thing that's been helpful for you before, you should think about doing that. And you should have honest conversations. Um, You know, you shouldn't just apply to a program and just go to it because you got in. You should talk to the people in the program before you apply. You should talk to um, wherever you're thinking about. You should talk to the director of graduate study. And you should bring this up to them and ask them if you could talk to students that are in the program who are self-reporting that they're dyslexic or if they could talk to you about what kind of access and accommodations are available to you. Um, PhD programs are ultimately generally, and I say, this is someone who's gone through it. Michael, I think you probably agree with me. They partially thrive on you not knowing as a student, what you can actually ask for and mm-hmm. what you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, because academics are not necessarily great at all the administrative things that are required as administering a graduate program. However, they do exist. And uh, if you know that you can poke on them and ask for what you need, um, often you can find accommodation. Um, at the same time, you're going to find some assholes who just tell you to, you know, who say the most ableist shit possible uh, in a way that is couched in language that makes them try to not seem ableist, uh, who will just tell you you can't do it. I, mm-hmm. I would not tell you that. Um but I would say that you should exercise your capability to find all the information available to you, and that information will not be equivalent across institutions. So mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I have nothing to add. You said much more than I could have, which was essentially uh this is not Anything I have experience with, um, so I don't know uh, anything in that regard, but knowing what I know about PhD programs and how they work, it strikes me that this is a sort of thing that could vary wide uh, yeah very widely between individual programs. Oh yeah, and absolutely. and you have to do your research.
1: I will say you'll probably have a better shot if you have a program or if you try to enter into a program that has disability studies taught within the department. Mm-hmm. In a broad sense, you know, I, I'm thinking here about uh, uh, comp lit programs that, pr- that have coursework that's about working with students who have um, learning disabilities uh, and how I know that the academics who come out of those programs, those PhD programs, their pedagogies radically transformed, you know, in order to to um, better work with, you know, uh, students with dyslexia. So I wonder if that might be a better shot to think about, too. Um, so I don't know. Um yeah. Yeah, uh, hopefully that at least partially answers your question. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Michael H. from the Discord writes in, It recently came to our attention in the Discord that there are no pinball machines based on a work by Stephen King. Which Stephen King story would make for a good pinball machine, and what would its gimmick be? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, probably Creep Show, right? I mean I my problem with this question is I don't really know a lot about pinball machines. It seems to me when I look at pinball machine adaptations of anything, it's just like so totally arbitrary that literally anything could be a pinball machine it seems. Uh yeah, they can. Yeah, like <laughs> uh, <laughs> like I just I don't know how these decisions are made. Like I've seen multiple versions of a Sopranos pinball machine. Like what is going on there? Uh so I was actually just looking I
1: thought, oh, there must be a pinball machine in Maximum Overdrive, since there is a, you know, the the arcade, right? Yeah. I thought certainly one of those pinball machines must be like its own Stephen King themed pinball machine, but no,
0: yeah, it's not. It doesn't look well. Right. Here, here is actually uh, the answer that I came up with as I was like pondering this question. Will, the, but also disclosing that I have no idea how appropriate this is or how it works, not knowing right. anything about pinball machines. Right. It's the Tommy knockers. Okay. like you have like the 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 case or the cabinet or whatever, uh, have it kind of like stylized or customized to look like sort of weird and like, uh, you know, rigged together. And then the gimmick is that it's got all sorts of like weird Rube Goldberg contraptions inside of it. And when you hit certain uh, whatevers, uh, those things like activate and it like spins around and you get like, you know, glowing green lights and so on.
1: Yeah, that sounds cool yeah i my answer is creep show, and it would be because there'd be like three scoring areas that were all themed differently, you know, so it would mm-hmm. be like uh the the crate uh Leslie nielsen murdering people and uh that <laughs> the, the the zombie pushing the uh the <laughs> gravestone. on <that> yeah <laughs> uh that would be the three different scoring arenas and you would have to like raise the waves in one. You would have to like score into a thing and it would Mm -hmm, raise mm -hmm. the tide. That would be one. And then, um, maybe uh, getting into a particular zone. That would be like the splatter kills from that, that one. And then, uh, I don't know what the other one would be. I don't know what the crate would be. It would be like, I guess that would be, uh, different murders, like, who can mm-hmm. you lure to the crate? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean. It would be like get into the left path, the center path, the right path. That's mm-hmm. a, that's how it would be. That would be easy. Okay.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. This is this is Matt, Matt from Chattanooga. Interestingly enough, I'm from up that way. Uh, long time, first time. Matt says, I was listening to too much future New Vegas DLC episodes and thought a new angle on what would a Stephen King video game look like. Question that came up last time. Specifically, what would a Fallout New Vegas DLC authored by King instead of Alona Sawyer look like? Curious to see what y'all think Steve would do inside the constraints of that franchise. So if Stephen King made a Fallout, I mean, uh, Fallout uh, New Vegas DLC, what would it it be? I have a pocket answer. Easy.
0: Well, I mean, I want to hear it now desperation oh so, yep
1: there's a you, you go to a little town there's a guy who's hunting you around you got to stealth and hide from him uh mm-hmm. if he if you don't want to get murdered he's kind of like jason right so mm-hmm. what's that guy's name it's not broad again Etri- etrigan <laughs> it's not etrigan. yeah
0: yeah yeah uh collie etrigan or Etragian or something
1: atragian yeah I, I think etrigan's the uh, demon yeah, from dc i was gonna comics. say
0: etrigan's from the comic from like yeah. the dc comics yeah
1: he's cool that little rhyming guy uh but uh so yeah him oh and jason blood oh yeah man dc comics uh so yeah i would say desperation easy uh you you know you got to go around you got to go collect those uh tack in ta whatever they are they slowly like it turns people into ghouls Uh uh-huh because that's what's happening in that right getting like zombified or something over time uh and you got to like go to the center while avoiding that guy and you got to do some like little quests along the way Mm -hmm. that's what i would say just straight up, you could just, you could read Desperation, schematize it out, and then just turn that into a Fallout DLC. Easy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, that's going to be my answer, too, because my only other thought was, like, weirdly enough, given Stephen King's obsessions about, like, the things that happen, like, the obsessions of Stephen King that you can fit into, like, the, the aesthetic wheelhouse of Fallout New Vegas, uh, a lot of those show up in Lonesome Road, I would say. Uh, not in the way that he would have framed them, but like, you know, like Lonesome, like Stephen King's Lonesome Road would have been uh, you thinking about all of these horrors of technology as Randall Flagg talks in your ear forever. Right. Uh,
1: the mist. That would be an easy one to do.
0: Mm, it would mm-hmm. do a
1: little base builder. Got to do some little base building in defense and then you do it. Yeah. Uh, crewing up your party, driving across the wasteland. All right. Uh, this is in the realm of music questions. We're almost done. Uh Pete says. Did you look up this location, by the way?
0: Yeah, uh Bris Vegas is apparently what people in Brisbane, Australia ironically call Brisbane sometimes, as a uh I don't know, some sort of swipe question mark. I'm I'm not sure of actually the, the affect here against uh like Brisbane being like Las Vegas. In some way, I'm not from Australia. I don't know what's happening here.
1: I think it's that classic Australian humor where they <laughs> understate the thing and then they take the understated thing and they make it big and powerful. You I know see. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, this is from Pete in Brisa Vegas. It says, In the stand when uh, trash can Man wanders the state saying bumpity bumpity bump, I always assumed he was singing Down to the Nightclub by Tower of Power. You didn't mention that during the mixtape and neither did Kurt hamilton please clarify this is important so i purposely (laughs) didn't listen to that until right now i don't know what this song is down to the nightclub and i also believe does does trash can man actually do that in the original
0: novel that we read or is this
1: uh because there's a lot more trash can man in the re-up
0: yeah the in the um uh uncut version i honestly don't know because my answer to this question was just going to be about kind of like Sometimes we miss things when we're reading these books, particularly if uh, characters just kind of like say part like as this seems to be framed here. Right. Mm-hmm. If a character is kind of just singing part of a chorus of a song, but the that part of the chorus is bumpity bumpity bump. I, I don't necessarily feel mm-hmm. compelled to like look up what song that could be because I can't it, account
1: Pete. I can't account for your
0: headcanon. Yeah.
1: OK, we just can't. I'm going to I'm cutting to a quick of it here. <laughs> but I will listen to it. You want to listen to it too? And then we'll find okay, out. Did you listen to it, it already?
0: It. No, I didn't. Let's all right.
1: I'm gonna play it. I'm going
0: I to play. I need to pull it up. Hold on. Okay.
1: I'll wait on you.
0: Oh, I it's accidentally just copied and pasted Bris Vegas.
1: <laughs> uh, it's from nineteen seventy two. So it does it, you know, timeline it, it works fits. out great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fits great.
0: Okay. All right. I've got it up. I'm getting ready to hit the button.
1: All right. Three, two, one, play. All right, okay, got some jam some funky jams,
0: <laughs> okay, yeah, there's a lot of people in this band. <laughs> the song's rad, yeah, this is good.
1: I haven't heard the bumpity bumpity bump part yet. I just heard it, oh, bump. Bump, bump. Yeah, sure. That's probably right. Yeah. Yeah. Good uh good looking out. Yeah. Pete from Bruce vegas It does sound like what probably he would be referencing because they do yeah. go bump, bump, bump. Yeah. Cool. Nope. Makes point. sense to me. All right. Well, there you go. Clarified. Mm-hmm. Uh this is from Brinton. If you were given the task of creating a greatest hits collection of 12 tracks mentioned in Stephen King books, which artists would be on there? What artists would you absolutely avoid besides a classic folk singer? Uh, Thanks for the question, Um, Well, Who Made Who? That's at the top. Mm -hmm. Eddie Cochran. That's on top. Sure. I've become a little bit of a cockhead. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I listen to Eddie Cochran all the time now, <laughs> like constantly. It's he's like every playlist I listen to. So uh, I I think I actually I think I gave Eddie Cochran some shit. <laughs> I think uh, I think I specifically I was like uh, twelve o'clock rock, not good.
0: Oh yeah, because that's I was the, wrong. that's the one that Danny likes. Yeah, I
1: know I was wrong. <laughs> I, I'm I'm uh, brave enough to admit it. Oh, he admitted. Hmm. Um, I I don't. Twelve tracks is going to be hard. I might. Uh, yeah. I I'm going to say this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to work up my playlist, and then I'll put it on. Uh, the uh, I'll put it on Twitter the day this drops. How about that? Okay.
0: Yeah, and um, I'm not going to do that at all because <laughs> <You> don't <laughs> I don't mention. have enough opinions.
1: Okay, that sounds. Fair. <laughs> Twelve Bob Dylan yeah. tracks.
0: Yeah, I mean the one the one thing that I would add to what you already said is like you got to have some CCR in there.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Of course. Yeah. I mean, there are some good Stephen King
0: songs. Yeah. I
1: mean, he didn't make them, but st- there are good songs that Stephen King likes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned how to play "Who Made Who" on the guitar.
0: Did you say you did, or you want to? I did. Ooh, it's not complicated. <laughs> really? Yeah. Shocker, huh? Yeah, you're saying AC/DC doesn't have a complex uh, harmonics going on? I don't play the uh, I don't play the guitar solo. <laughs>
1: And look, that's it. We did it. Hooray. We got to rank our stuff. You ready?
0: Yeah. All
1: right. Give me one second. I got to carry a notepad out. Mm-hmm. All right. We took a long break. Now we're back. We have ranked everything. So you took a while mm-hmm. and really thought about it. hmm And I did it purely based on gut instinct, and it took me about three minutes. Mm-hmm. So I think our, our lists are probably going to be different. But why, why don't you go first? We're, we're ranking... Uh, worst to best so this is a mm-hmm. rank order of all the stephen king books we've read so far not including the tommy which is next month's uh book uh everything so and not, what well, not including
0: dance macabre either
1: not including dance macabre I, I i specifically made a rule to exclude it because it didn't really seem fair it's right. not like any of the other books right so
0: right it's it's weird to chart them on a continuum
1: <laughs> right we will we will uh rank the nonfiction books by themselves once we've read more than one
0: mm-hmm uh
1: all right, yeah. go ahead, Michael. Sorry. This is your worst okay. to best worst to best Stephen King book so far.
0: Right. Uh Rage, Roadwork, Eyes of the Dragon, The Running Man, The Talisman, Christine, Thinner, Creep Show, Firestarter, The Dead Zone, Cycle of the Werewolf, Different Seasons. Drawing of the Three, Misery, The Gunslinger, Pet Cemetery, It, Skeleton Crew, The Stand, Night Shift, and this is the final five. Mm -hmm. The Long Walk, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Cujo.
1: Fascinating fascinating fat very different lists we're gonna have mine was just gut too right mm-hmm. i'm sure yours is in some ways consistent with previous lists you've produced but mine probably <laughs> is not pure i gut, never made a list on this i think we did this last year though didn't we did we okay i think i believe we did uh pure gut instinct is what i got worst to best stephen king novels that we've read so far rage road work thinner skeleton crew the gunslinger the Talisman, The Dead Zone, Misery, Skeleton Crew, The Drawing of the Three, Eyes of the Dragon, Night Shift, Different Seasons, The Stand, Firestarter, Creep Show, Carrie, Cycle of the Werewolf, The Running Man, The Long Walk. And so here's the Top Five. Pet Cemetery, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Christine Cujo. You said "Skeleton Crew" twice. Oh, did I? Yep. (laughs) I know I wrote it in. Where? Where? Oh, I had it on four and number thing. I I reordered it and I didn't delete the first one. Okay. (laughs) It is not number four. Skeleton Crew. It's on there twice. No, it's closer to Misery. I uh, okay. I uh, meant to delete the first one. Okay. So uh, the worst five are Rage, Roadwork, Thinner, The Gunslinger. The talisman. It, kind of shocking to me, actually, that the gunslinger ended up so low. Mm-hmm. But just vibes. And also uh, extremely <laughs> surprising to me that Christine's number two. Yeah, that's that's a, a real thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just, you know, I, I will say this. You know, part of the part of the show, the interesting part of, about the show to me is on one hand, we produce, you know, we, we read the book and very soon afterward, talk about the book. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes you have like a week or so you tend to finish before I do. I'm often finishing the book the day before, sometimes right before. Sometimes I read the last chapter, like literally right before we record, because I think that's fun to do, you know, to have it really fresh. (laughs) Well, I do. I do think and I do have a game study study buddies, too. I'll wake up early before we record sometimes. Now -hmm. that we record earlier, that's a little bit harder to do. But, um, you know, so I try to have it really fresh in my mind. Um, and often my schedule demands that I do that, but, uh, so, you know, Christine, I think I was middle of the pack on before, but now in retrospect, having read more work, having thought about it a lot more, I'll say Christine sticks with me more than some of these others do. And, uh, that might be because of the movie,
2: mm, mm-hmm.
1: you know, it might not be fair truly right. to the corpus it, because the, the, the movie is just so good. Anyway.
0: Yeah, no, you are swayed by films. You're swayed by cinema. I am. I The, the treachery of the image. I don't right, know, I don't whereas know what to I, uh, the student of the pristine written word, Right. Uh, have uh, better opinions. So. <laughs> yeah, you just get it. So,
1: yeah, you know, and that's the thing about making a list quickly and just doing it on like vibe and feeling. I think probably if I like sat and thought about this for a couple hours, I'd have a different list. But that that's my if you asked me to list them off this very moment, which you have done. Mm-hmm. you being the world. Uh that's that's what I've got. I really so really surprised that the gunslinger ended up so low in my list. It kind of surprised that the dead zone ended up so low. And really surprised that Christine and uh, like cycle the werewolf were so high, but that's how I felt. Mm-hmm. And even firestarter. I do feel confident about these two though.
0: Oh, is it in here?
1: I don't think it's in here.
0: I was wondering like I was trying to keep track and I don't think you mentioned it.
1: I didn't mention it. I think I just deleted it off the list. It is right after the stand. Okay, so it's in yeah. the so middle of the pack for me. True, like dead middle of the pack. Uh, Eyes of the Dragon, Night Shift, different seasons The Stand It. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's right. I think that's actually correct. I do think that the Stand and It constitute the dead middle of what I think Stephen King is up to and what I enjoy. And Misery is just right below that, as I said in that episode. And right above that is Carrie, Cycle of the Werewolf, the Running Man for me. And that, those that the middle feels exactly right. So I think that does mean the edges are probably correct.
2: Mm-hmm. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I don't know. My list, I, I mean, I think my list just feels very unsurprising in, in a general sense, right? I really mm-hmm. put the fantasy things near the bottom and the things that I like near the top. And wow. everything in the middle becomes... Uh, not interchangeable, but like once you get into kind of like your your middle grade king, it becomes very hard for me to make uh, hard distinctions. Right. Like the, the difference between the fire the, between the dead zone and fire starter for me is just how am I feeling that day? Right.
1: OK, cool. Well, that's yeah. it. That's the end of the question, sewer. Yeah. Thank for you, everybody, for, for listening t- for 2023. Um, you can always send us what, what's the email address?
0: uh the question sewer at gmail.com well you can do that
1: you can go to patreon.com slash range touch in order to uh support us this is going in the main feed um and uh hopefully hopefully people enjoy it enjoy listening to us answer questions and we're going to try to do a little bit better about answering questions in the bonus odes. we just uh, forget yeah <sighs> we get we get so uh wrapped up in cinema
0: Well, I mean, we also like tend to record those after having like recorded the mainline episode earlier that day. And so we're like, oh, my God, we need to eat lunch.
1: That's true. (laughs) That's often often the case. (laughs) So we'll be back on the uh the 12th on september 12th with tommy knockers and we're doing the main uh or not main uh, but we'll be doing the novel in the mainline feed and then on patreon.com slash range touch you can get access to the bonus odes we'll be doing the mini series or t- wow. mini tv event i don't know what that long movie <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, Oh uh, sure. tommy
1: knockers for for television okay right. well goodbye